sometimes we'd be shooting or producing something and we're like, is this it? Am I, am I going to put this out in the name of the leader of one of the major political parties? This thing that I watched the edit for or that like I was holding the camera for? There was some really, really surreal moments in politics where you're like, you know, we're just sitting here in a room with the guy who just won the election. So like the day after he won, Trudeau comes by the, the little party offices to say, you know, shake some hands, say thank you. And then we still had some videos to shoot that day, like our normal like uh, holiday greetings, that kind of thing. And we're in the room all together. And I remember our videographer looks at him and goes, so what do we call you now? You know, like at the time we had, we had just called him Justin. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to my social life. This is the podcast where you can hear the real stories behind the people on social media. I'm your host, Jacob Kelly. As always, today's podcast is powered by TrueFan. And before we get into today's conversation with Dave Summer, there's a couple things that we need to go over first. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to leave us a positive rating and review. Share this episode with a friend and subscribe to the show. But a brand new interviews every single Monday and a brand new takeaways episode as an audio exclusive where I sit down and break down the most recent podcast episode of the week every single Thursday. And now without further ado, I am very excited to present to you my conversation with Dave Summer. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to my social life. I am your host, Jacob Kelly. As always, today's podcast is powered by TrueFan. Today on the podcast, we are joined by Dave Summer. Dave is Instagram's public policy manager for politics, government, and elections. And prior to his time at Instagram, he was head of digital for Canada's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. And I'm very excited to have him here on the podcast today. Dave, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Jacob. How are you? Thanks so much for having me. As I, as I told you before, it, is, it has been a lifelong dream to be on someone's podcast, not necessarily have my own podcast. This is, this is it. This is the dream come true today. So I'm I'm. A- I'm excited to hear that. I'm excited to have you here on the podcast. I mean, like it was good because I was doing my prep work and I was like, there's, you've never, as far as I could tell leading up to it, like when I was prepping, you hadn't done a podcast. So I'm stoked to have your first, your first interview here on the show. I have been studiously either, you know, avoiding them or prevented from going on them due to job obligations. But I think, you know, this is it, the stars have aligned. So you're, you're, you're witnessing my dream come true in real time happening right now. This is great. This is great. And where I want to start today's podcast on your first podcast, I want to go all the way back to the beginning. Were you born and raised, correct me wrong, Pierrefonds, Quebec? In Pierrefonds, baby. So yeah, in the, for those who don't know, that's in the, the suburbs of Montreal, in the area called the West Island, in the, in the western uh, suburbs. So yeah, born and raised there uh, until I was about uh, 17 years old. Okay. And what did you want to be growing up? Because I'm assuming as a kid growing up in Peter Fon, like you didn't want to be the Instagram's policy manager. No, that, that sort of uh, arise, uh, arose as a result of kind of like some interesting left and right turns in life. Growing up, I think the first thing I ever wanted to be was, a, was an architect. I didn't really know what that meant or what that entailed um, for a long time. Uh, but I wanted to be an architect. And then I kind of pivoted to wanting to be a, a screenwriter and then a speechwriter for a prime minister. So those were like the three things that I always, I always sort of thought that I would be one day. And then I got really, really into radio and started sort of, you know, moving myself in the direction for radio. Interesting. I mean, I'm sure we'll probably talk more about screenwriting off air because that's something I'm getting super into right now. Uh, but I'm curious where the the desire, the want to be a prime minister speechwriter came from. Because that's very unique. Like there's no one I went to high school with that wanted that job. Yeah, there was, I was always like a, like a smart ass debate club kid, you know, in, in high school. And 
I don't really know where the, the evolution um, of it came from, but I always loved politics too, right? I was a political junkie and I loved writing. So I think, you know, put the two together and that's where that sort of aspiration ended up coming Okay. And so you ended up going to school first year Carleton and then transferred to Concordia? Uh, so, yeah, more or less. I, I went to Carleton for two and a half years and then I left to go do an internship um, for a whole semester in, in LA. Um, and then when I came back from that, uh, there was some job offers on the table uh, in Montreal to sort of like work in broadcasting, one at, in radio at Shome FM uh, in Montreal, classic rock station that's been around forever. And the other was at Music Plus to be like a, like a reporter slash VJ. And I always love telling that story because my career at Music Plus in Montreal lasted exactly one week. And I interviewed the band Less Than Jake. And they were like, thank you. Your French is not exactly where we need it to be at this time. And that was that. And I went through like a slew of like screening exams to get that job, like a music general knowledge quiz and interviews and all that stuff. And that was that. So all that said, I ended up at Concordia. I was quite happy to, to finish my journalism degree there. And I was, you know, getting to do some fun stuff on the radio. Showing my family. Yeah. And you, so you mentioned that internship and I don't want to gloss over that because that internship in LA was with the Tonight Show, right? Correct. Yeah. So that was with um, The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. And I was very, very lucky to get that one. That arose because in third year journalism school at Carleton, um, you were asked to go get an internship, I guess, in the news business or in the broadcasting. At the time, you know, I don't know what it was with me. I was feeling restless or, or who knows what. But at the time, I was like, let me try something different or, or maybe something a little more elaborate. I actually called um, The Late Show with David Letterman to see if they took an interest. And I don't know if they did or didn't, but their receptionist was like a little bit curt with me or a little bit intimidating. And I was very intimidated. And I thought, oh, well, you know, I prefer Letterman, but I was like, let's try Leno and see what they say. So I called them up and it worked out, you know, I interviewed and I got it. And the weird thing is that semester ended up being the semester that uh, David Letterman had his heart attack and his show was dark or using replacement hosts most of the time. So it's like a weird series of events. But anyway, um, I went out to Burbank for that whole semester and that was, that was a hell of a time. Like it was, it was super interesting to be fair. You know, the interns, we didn't exactly get the most glamorous work. We were mailbag schleppers almost exclusively, like not even to the level of coffee schlepper. Like the, the, the paid production assistant staff was that. And at the time these internships were unpaid for a college credit only. Um, and so we were just, you know, sorting mail all day. And of course, you know, in the context of today, looking back on an unpaid internship like that, obviously I was, I was you know, very lucky to be able to do that. And, you know, it just seems crazy now that you do that for, for four or five months. Yeah. Fun fact, actually, about Letterman. So when he went dark, well, I had one of his guest hosts. I think it was from that period when he guest hosted Letterman. Tom Dreesen came on the podcast a couple months ago. It's just a fun little, fun little tidbit. Um, but so was there any interaction with Leno at all? I think I saw an old photo of you and Leno. Was that just like, he shows up one day to take <laughs> right. a photo with the interns and then leaves or like, what was that? Yeah, that was on my last day. That's on my Instagram profile forever. That was on my last day. You know, you go up on stage with him and take a picture. You know, wearing a sublime t-shirt. Uh, or, you know. um, and there was, a, there was, I remember that photo because there was a lion behind us. They had had some lion on from the circus or from a wildlife sanctuary, like this old, very docile lion. But I was sort of like, still kind of scared, like posing with Jay, like looking back over my shoulder. But he was, honestly, to answer your question, he was quite nice. You know, he interacted with him a few times. He kind of stayed in his own world um, while he was doing the show. Like he had a uh, sort of office that people called the bunker. It was like, kind of like a self-contained apartment on the grounds. 
And then, you know, when he'd come up to the office, he was very friendly. He, you know, he'd do his little shtick with the interns that I sort of came to realize was his shtick with the interns. He'd be like, hey, how you doing? Yeah, you sick of show business? No, you like it? You know? And then he'd love it. And then, you know, the one time I ever seriously interacted with him, we were alone in the kitchen, like in this kitchenette together. And he was like, so, you know, what do you want to do? Do you, do you, do you want to do stand-up? I do want to go on show business. I was like, well, I've thought about it. I would, I would do stand-up. He's like, how old are you? And I said, I'm 19. And he goes, well, if you wanted to, you'd know by now. And then he walked out. And that was, that was my interaction with Jay Leno. Nice guy. Really nice guy. And I saw, I think it was on your LinkedIn. It said job offer made at the conclusion of the internship. Was that for the Tonight Show? Or is that when you got back to Montreal and you got a job offer when you got back? Yeah. So that actually happened, you know, a couple of times. So at the end of my internship, they were like, do you want to just work here? And, you know, I, I hadn't finished school. And so I said no. And it's funny because I went, when I went back to, to work in Montreal and to work at Sean Lefem, the morning host there, Steve Anthony, was like, when I told him that story, he was so incredulous. He was like, why would you stay in school? Look at me. I host the morning show, you know, on, on, on Montreal's sort of like renowned radio station. I, did, I didn't go to school. I didn't finish school. So, you know, he, he sort of raked me over the coals for it. But at the time, I thought it was, it was kind of the right thing to do. So I went back and finished school. And then when I was done, you know, a few years later, uh, that option was still on the table to go back to The Tonight Show. Uh, but, the, you know, at the time, it just moving out to California for what was an almost unsustainably low salary was, was not really in the cards for me. And they said, you know, most people who become production assistants here live with their family. But the salary was, was quite low. And, you know, at the time, I just thought it wasn't the right direction. You know, do I regret it now? Sometimes. Sometimes. But... <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm happy that I came home and, and finished school. Too. Okay, fair enough. And so when you were working at that radio station, was that the one, was that 940 News Radio or did, was that, did that come after? Ah, so that's a, that's a great question. So that job at Show FM was just sort of like while I was in school, I was, I would go out and do like wacky pranks on the radio, like wacky pranks into a microphone and try to like fool people. And I'd be like, uh, hey, did you hear that they're changing the name of the Lazy Susan because Susan is offensive to people named Susan? And then, I, you know, people would be like outraged on the street, like, oh, that's crazy. What is this world coming to, you know? And then we put together like a little fun montage. But then when I graduated and became an actual journalist and who, you know, was not allowed to do fake news, then I went to go work at a radio station called 940 News in Montreal, which is like an all news radio station, kind of like no longer with us. But, you know, there's similar formats in Ottawa and Toronto. Again, a lot of this early stuff that I have is all is all courtesy of your LinkedIn accounts. I got a lot yeah. of copy paste stuff. Um, so you but you're doing multiple jobs. Here. You were writing, producing, and broadcasting, right? So you were on air doing everything. Yeah, and you know what? That's that, that's the thing about that radio station. It was a small radio station. The ratings were very low. It's obviously defunct now. It didn't last very long. But what benefit or the advantage I got from there was is that for a small place that was very short staffed, I got to have a lot of responsibility. And I got to put my repetitions in over and over and over again, you know, producing my own stories, writing my own stories out there, literally driving myself around in the company car that said 940 News on it, you know, going to a story, writing, cutting it in the car, you know, like on my little mini display or getting back to the studio to cut it on our software. And then as I, as I sort of spent more time there, I got to anchor a little bit. I got to line up shows, uh, you know, so it was, it was a lot of fun. There was a lot of like opportunity to develop, you know, some Swiss Army knife uh, type skills when it came to broadcasting that sort of would, would I would lean on forever to this day. Yeah. This is probably a dumb question. So bear with me through this. What was the process for getting breaking news like back then in a pre-social media world? 
is a great question. Well, back then, so back then, I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing to think about like, how did we do things before social media, you know? But back then there was a couple different ways, especially in local news. So like there was literally a pager that would sit on the assignment desk. And for example, if the cops, uh, if there was a murder, a fire, anything like that, like our pager would go off. I guess you had to subscribe to the sort of cop service. And there was always police scanners. So if, you know, if that was the kind of local newsroom you were in or, you know, you just hear something popping on the police scanners. But of course, back then we had the, we, you know, the news equivalent of social media, which was wire services. So, you, you know, you'd subscribe to Canadian Press or Associated Press. And then in our newsroom software, you just sort of like see the slugs come in or like the, the story headlines come in uh, all day long. Like this happened, that happened. And then, you know, it's a little bit slower than, than Twitter, obviously, but it was still quite fast. And to this day, I remember the icon on that software was like a little house that was on fire, like a little flaming house to advise you that this was in fact, you know, breaking So that's how we got it in the old days, kids. You know, then we'd go over to this stone tablet and chisel in the news story, uh, you know, and then we'd, we'd somehow make copies of that and uh, drop it off on your doorstep. That's awesome. So I'm curious, would, obviously like with with doing a lot of everything, how you mentioned with the smaller station, you're, do, you're kind of getting a lot of experience, but you're doing a lot. What's the most stressful experience you ever had working in radio? That's a great question. Um, I would say, you know, radio, all news radio is such a fast paced, intense, intense world that the whole job is sort of built on stress. So, you know, you'd be in a situation where, uh, you know, you get to a house fire, the thing is still burning. Um, you know, your editor is asking you, can you do a live hit, um, you know, at 8.30 a.m. and then at 9 a.m. and you're still trying to get your bearings on the story. And honestly, you know, that's kind of one of the ways in which the news business is, is losing its way a little bit in that the sort of need for instantaneous filing, especially now where reporters have to also file to social media and to their traditional media, is crowding out just even basic news gathering. So, you know, I got sent to some press conferences where you know, I'm embarrassed to admit I was asked to grab the press release when you get there and just file a hit right away on the radio by phone without having to, without getting to ask a question of the official who's giving that press. So that's the kind of stuff that would really stress me out far more than, you know, a time crunch or, you know, going to a really like tricky uh, murder scene or fire or anything like that. Okay. And then, so you end up leaving radio after that and you go into TV, right? Yeah. I believe. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And you- you were still reporting at that point. So you, you were, you went from radio to TV. So was it, was the dynamics different reporting on radio versus reporting in front of a camera? Totally. totally. And I was so nervous. I was, I was very, very shaky in my first couple of years on camera because I, I was, you know, I, I had a sort of self-conscious way about me on camera that you couldn't really, I couldn't really practice my way out of instantly, you know, like being on TV was, was fun, but you know, Back then, like I, you know, I didn't fill out until my later twenties. So I was like this, this skinny dude on TV, just sort of trying not to do that nervous swallow that you you see sometimes young reporters do, and I was doing it all the time. There was that. There was you know this idea that you know my colleagues and viewers could write in to like comment on the color of my tie, you know, or you know putting on makeup in the morning and, and going to sleep at night, forgetting to take it off, and just being like, ah, oh, watch this makeup off. But in general, you know, the dynamics of putting together a TV story versus a radio story are somewhat the same. It's just, you know, you're working and you're dependent on the teamwork you have with your camera operator who is there to save your bacon more than one time a day. But in the end, you know, you're trying to get context, you're trying to get clips from various actors and put it together so that it looks nice. Uh, you know, now uh, when you know, you're giving that story over to your editor, 
who's then trying to bring the vision for that story to life all in a really, really compressed time frame. So it's a lot to learn to go from radio to TV, but as long as you sort of remember to tell that story with a sort of like beginning, middle, and end in the context, you can, you can sort of see how, that, how those two careers would be very related to transfer. I'm curious if you think there's going to be less reporters today or like in the next generation that are, aren't as nervous going on camera. Cause I feel like that's a very common thing to be nervous going on air. But when you think about Gen Z, they're used to being on camera since they were kids. So do you think that there's going to be like, they're going to be more used to that when they get into news roles kind of in the next, next couple of years? That is a really, really great point. And I hope more of them are. And, you know, you see young reporters on TV now, I don't necessarily know if it's, if it's a generational thing or a personality thing, a confidence thing, because you do see, you know, still young reporters who go on TV and talk in that reporter voice, right? Which is, which is, yes, maybe that's a measure of confidence or not, but you know, I still wish that a lot of reporters would would just sort of speak in their normal voice. And you see a lot of young reporters now who are getting it and doing it, but others who aren't, uh, you know. And and I just think confidence on camera. Uh, certainly, I, I wish you know. I wish I had it uh, back in the day when I first started. And when I see someone who is young and who has all that confidence, I'm like, ah, good, they got it. You know, it's great. How can you, if you're not confident on camera, how can you develop that confidence? Is it just like you mentioned with radio, you got to put a lot of reps in. So it's just putting a lot of reps in. Yeah. I wish I knew, honestly, I wish I knew back then. The one secret that, that eventually allowed me to just sort of calm down a little bit on camera and just like keep it together and avoid like the nervous breathing was someone, someone, there's actually two things. One was the the anchor of the CTV Montreal News back then. Uh, his name was Bill Hoagland. And he took me aside after one like super you know nervous hit on my part. And he was like, hey, he literally said to me, hey, we wouldn't ask you to do this if we didn't think you could do it. So just do it. You know, and like that really calmed me down and it was quite helpful. And then the second thing was just learning to look not at the camera, but through the camera and talk to the camera like you were talking to your friend in a bar and just telling a story. And that sort of enabled me to forget about like cramming all the information that I have from my head into the microphone in record time and talking really fast and just talk as fast as I can so I don't screw it the hell up, but just in the end to just be more conversational and tell the story. And it took me a long time um, to sort of figure that out. And by the time I figured it out, I, I was off camera again. I was producing in my next job. So I was like, all right, well, yeah, that's for another time. Yeah. Your next couple jobs were producing, right? Yeah. Yeah. I ended up going to CTV Toronto. So I moved away from Montreal, I was, you know, sort of um, contract work in Montreal. And I found this full-time job in Toronto um, at the same network. So I go to CTV Toronto and I was doing some freelancing um, at the network, but my job was to produce the weekend show. And I did that for, I think, about a year and a half um, and threw myself in on the air every once in a while. I tried to just say, just voiceover only. But I eventually, I don't know, I was producing the weekend show. And I remember I'm starting to get disillusioned with it. And I was starting to get a little bit um, just um, weirded out that as a reporter, I was reporting on what other people were living. And I remember it was it was Pride Weekend in Toronto some year. I forget what it was. And I'm sitting there typing this headline to open the show, like, a gorgeous day in Toronto and thousands come out for this parade on a beautiful sunny day. And I'm like literally in a windowless basement in Scarborough or a windowless you know, room in Scarborough. Just, Man, this kind of sucks. You know, and, and it started, I started thinking like, okay, I love news. I've been a news junkie my whole life, but, you know, I don't know if I'm the kind of person who has the temperament to be on the sideline for the rest of my career, you know? And, and some people, they, they, 
absolutely thrive on that, or they absolutely thrive on you know being like the the news hound who's out asking tough questions of people and all the rest. And like, I was just trying to figure out where my role was in news at the time when I was producing, and, and you know that would lead me to to leave just sort of cold. I left CTV Toronto without really a backup plan, and then um, fate would intervene, and that my father got very sick, so I went to go you know, be with him and take care of him for a few months. And when that was over, I, you know, I needed, I needed some, some stability and some comfort and, and went back to news for a little while because I thought, all right, this is, this is what I know and this is what I'm going to do. How do you take that jump where you realize initially that news isn't what you want to do? You don't have a backup plan, but you leave anyways. Like where does the, the confidence or the self-belief come from in that decision? I don't know if there was a lot, Jacob. It was, it was very, it was, it was a strange decision on my part. And I got to be honest with you, you know, it, not to, not to get too much into, into tragedy, but the day that my quitting became official, I just quit. I didn't have a plan and I just quit. And my father, you know, calls me to tell me, you know, he's terminally ill literally on the same day. So in a way, it was a, it was it was a small 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 gift because it allowed me to go spend time with him. Um, but at the same time, I was like, well, what am I going to do here? And I, I didn't really know, you know. And at the time, I guess I wasn't really ready to leave because I went ended up going back to CTV um, and then to other producing jobs afterwards. Okay, yeah, because you ended up going to Sun after. <laughs> after oh that. yes, yeah, that was. So that was my last producing job. So, you know, I go back to CTV and then I ended up working at CTV National for a bit. And same thing, this, this windowless room malaise took, took over me because the, the CTV National newsroom is crazily more dark than the local newsroom, okay, in, in Toronto. And they had, in fact, upgraded the local newsroom to a place with windows. But national, no. It's just like what you see on TV with Lisa LaFlamme is what you get. That's the studio. I used to sit in the desk pod sort of right behind where, where you, right behind her where you can see on camera. And you sit there and it's dark. And I was, again, just like, this, this just doesn't, this doesn't feel right. Now, you might say, if that doesn't feel right, why in the hell would you go to Sun News Network? Um, you know, and that is a question I still sometimes ask myself. Yeah, I was certainly not a partisan back then. I was certainly not a, a, a right-wing commentator or journalist. I was always pretty centrist and certainly in my personal and professional life. And then this offer comes up, right? To go work there nine to five and to produce a show two hours a day. And when I said, listen, I'm not like an opinion person, you know, on either side, whatever, they were like, no, no, we're hiring straight news journalists. This is what we need. Uh, just come over and work. Boy, did it take me about a day and a half to realize that was a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> but, you know, so I get to Sun News and, I, you know, I'm grateful for the opportunity, nine to five, Windows, you know, uh, it was a good opportunity, but I just, I didn't last very long. I, I lasted about three months before I realized I got to get um, Nothing is, is as it seems. And I desperately emailed my old bosses back at CTV News and it was rightfully so crickets in response, right? Like they were pissed when I left and couldn't believe that I was going to Sun. And there were a lot of good people at Sun, don't get me wrong. You know, there were a lot of good, hardworking journalists who just wanted to work. But, you know, the place was not a good station, it's not a good product. And that was that, you know. It took me a while to get out of there, but but uh, eventually I figured out a sort of exit route. 
was part of the allure of Sun Network that it had just because I did some googling it before. It did it just launch shortly before you arrived, so you would be able to kind of influence a lot of the kind of the growth of that show and how it developed. Well, it had la- it had launched about a year before, and that that TV station had had a couple of iterations. I think before I I, I got there, it was like a sort of fun lifestyle channel. And then it just sort of like morphed gradually into far right cable news. You know, they used to call it Fox North. And, you know, I, I got there and this was at a time where they were supposedly wanted to beef up the hard news section, but it just kind of never worked out. The audience obviously never grew. And I know there were a lot of issues with like the CRPC making the channel not mandatory for cable providers to carry. And a lot of, you know, what the network was relying on was that. The bottom line is, it was not run like any news operation I never worked in in my whole life. It was run like a political operation. It certainly was. And when that happens, when your goal is to sort of you know push a certain point of view, you end up losing on certain like basic production value, basic TV principles, you know, basic eye-catching principles that are going to keep viewers engaged. You can't just have people rambling for seven minutes about God knows what, you know, five times a day. This doesn't work. Before we get into the Liberal Party, I'm just curious what it was like working for for Lisa LaFlam. Like, I just when I think of CTV National News, that's the first person that comes to mind. Like, that's who I would have grown up watching on CTV National. Like, what was it like working for her? Yeah, I got there right as Lloyd Robertson, her previous, uh, you know, her predecessor, was leaving after his long and distinguished career, and Lisa took over, and it was you know, very well deserved. Everyone was like, "Well, Lisa is the obvious heir apparent," and so our paths didn't cross for too long. But she was great. Lisa's super professional. You know, very like, very like strict with words, if I could say, like a real wordsmith sitting around that table, making sure every word, every comma is in the right place, going over her scripts, you know, making sure it's exactly the way she wants, and then has to do it at 10 and at 11 and, you know, tweak the show between the two shows uh, if necessary or if news changes. So Lisa's such a great professional. It was uh, really, really great to work with her, but, you know, it didn't, it didn't last very long before I was in the need to get out of that uh, room, get out of that bed. And so how did the job with the liberals come up? I know we talked yesterday, you mentioned how you're like, you noticed that they were kind of doing things ad hoc and they could really benefit from someone kind of coming in there and really doing it in house. Like, was it you reaching out and being like, Hey, I can help you with this. Or was there like a job posting? Like, how did that whole thing come together? Yeah. I mean, you know, at the time, so after my three months in Sun News and I was like, I will literally apply anywhere. And I was, um, I was at a party where I ended up crossing paths with Katie Telford, who was his, I believe, campaign manager, Justin Trudeau's campaign manager back then, um, and has obviously been his chief of staff all this time. And Katie and I knew each other from way, way back in the day, um, from my first year of university, or for both of our first year of university, we worked together as pages in the Canadian House of Commons. So, you know, it's this program where uh, you know, eager young politics nerds can go work uh, in the parliament, being messengers, that sort of thing, um, you know, through, through the three buildings or several buildings of Parliament Hill. And it's a cool opportunity to learn about government. I love that year. That was the time of my life. And I had not seen Katie since then. And I see her at this party. And I believe Justin Trudeau might have been there as well. I don't remember meeting him that night. And I was like, hey, what are you up to? And she's like, oh, you know, I work with Justin Trudeau. And then it was like this light went on in my head, like, oh, this could be interesting. You know, like, it seems like he might win the leadership. Now, back then, he was still, you know, I don't want to say back then because he had huge name recognition, but back then, he was still a liberal MP. He was running for the leadership or about to. And then, you know, from the time I saw Katie at that party to the time I was able to, like, secure a coffee with, you know, 
someone who had, she had said, you should talk to this person. They're managing communications or whatever. It was a long, long, long process. And I got rejected the first time. So, you know, I applied for, they, they were like, you know, there's a communications job opening up. You should apply an interview. And I did. And in the end, they said, like, we need someone with a little bit more political experience because I had zero experience working with football. And, you know, at that point, I'd been at Sun for, I think, a year. And I was like, okay, like, uh, you know, I, I can be patient. Because they had said, talk to us in the fall. You know, there might be something opening up with things ramping up. And lo and behold, you know, I thought they were, they were just sort of being polite and telling me, thanks for coming out. So I called, uh, I called them back and I said, look, if you're just being polite, let me know and I'll drop this. But I really think I can be helpful. And they said to me, no, there's going to be stuff opening up um, at the Liberal Party offices in the fall and come on back and try it out. So, you know, I applied to that job and I got it. And I, I left Sun News about two years, uh, almost to the day after I joined. And they were good spirited about it, but they certainly teased me a lot for going from the conservative news station to the Liberal Party. And they put up these posters for my last two weeks on the job around my desk, like loose lips, sink ships, keep bum, she's not so dumb. All those like 1940s era propaganda posters, like ha ha ha, shut your mouth around Dave. Uh, you know, it's all in good fun, I guess. But then I left, and that was that. Okay, and we mentioned yesterday too. We were on the phone, and also I I found an old video of you speaking at an event or something like that. Oh, and you mentioned man. how what how video so, is that? God, yeah, I can't. It's like you in front of a whiteboard or something, oh, and it's yeah. like super low lit. Um, I but you were talking about how social wasn't even really a part of the job description when you started. You mentioned yesterday it was it was flyers. So what was yeah. So talk to me like the beginnings, like, did you know social was going to eventually become a part of it or was it just like strictly kind of not? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we're talking, this was in, in spring 2014 when I joined. So about a year and a half away from the election and, and this was going to be a fixed election date. The previous prime minister, Harper, had put fixed election dates into place, which gave a little bit more certainty. Um, and so I was hired, yeah, to sort of spiff up the external visual presentation of the party in any way that that we can. And, you know, it was one of those things where I get in the door and then we'd figure out what needed to be done. And at the time, Justin Trudeau's videos, he had a video operation, but it was run by guys who that wasn't their first job, who weren't necessarily, like that wasn't their main job at the party. They weren't necessarily in the communications department. It was a team of, 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 of a few guys and, and a couple of women who were just sort of chipping in when they could to set up the video camera and, and shoot the box. And so when I came in, I was like, okay, I can learn from these guys how to operate this gear and, and how to work this lighting pretty basically because I've never been a cameraman. Uh, and then it sort of gradually took off on its own. I remember the first thing I ever did was run the prompter um, for Justin Trudeau for a few holiday greetings, like in the spring of 2014. I remember Nowruz, uh, the Persian New Year, and I think it was like Greek Independence Day celebrations in Montreal. And I just remember like, uh, for those of you listening, my hands are shaking, you know, like, and my hands are sweating and trying to like operate that prompter and everyone just kind of laughing and, and Justin Trudeau just being chill out, relax. It's, it's okay. You know, take a breath. So it's all right. You know, he was fine. It was just like this iPad prompter rig. And so it started from there and flyers and posters, right? Trying to work out uh, how we could have more impact with our flyers and posters. And one of the first things we did was hire a profit, uh, proper graphic designer and then a little while later, a proper videographer who could sort of take those things on. Um, and so then we had a, like a media operation going. You know. And from there, we were able to turn our attention to the website and social media. 
Okay. And so when you take that over, is it like the Liberal Party channels or both the Liberal Party and Justin Trudeau's socials? Yeah, at the time it was both. And he, although his Twitter account was being run, uh, I think in a separate office back then. And, you know, we didn't, we didn't end up getting a Twitter account until the campaign started. But basically, yeah, I mean, you know, we were, we were working on the party accounts and trying to figure out what worked, what didn't. Uh, Justin Trudeau's Instagram was still quite, you know, casually uh, being run back then. So it was a lot of things that sort of, that needed to be, I guess, strategized for if you put it that way. We need to figure out, okay, how often are we posting? What are we doing? What's our goal here besides sort of like once a week posting? And what kind of story are we trying to tell? And figuring out also what worked for Justin Trudeau. Like, how, what is he comfortable with, um, you know, in terms of like social media when it comes to what goes out with his name, what goes out with his party name, and so on and so forth, and figuring out where the goalposts were for a long time. And so how do you figure that out? Because you know the election's coming. So how, like, how does that factor into figuring all this out? Well, one, just trying to put the pieces together to have a strategy, but also knowing you're building towards an election that's going to start within the next year or so. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, we, we had to sort of figure out, okay, what part of this social media is going to be like messaging on policy? What part of the social media is going to be, for example, criticizing the government because we were still in opposition at what was the tone we could take? And then at what point do we start rolling out like the quote unquote promises that were uh, going to be part of our platform? And so, you know, this is something that really started happening gradually over time, sort of discussing and figuring out, all right, this stuff is best handled on the liberal party. This stuff is best handled on the at Justin Trudeau accounts. And we go from there. And so as an election is coming, you know, the social media is really just going to reflect the policy and the broader comm strategy or communication strategy for how to get that policy across. So I remember one of our first big promises, obviously, was uh, what we called the Canada Child Benefit, which was an increase in, like, I guess, the baby bonus that, that we had in Canada. Um, and at the time, what the promise was, was we were going to take all of the sort of like little tax credits, um, all of the or individual tax credits that uh, were currently in place, bundle them into one and make it a little bit more generous. And I remember that was on May the 4th. So Justin Trudeau, famous Star Wars nerd and the whole thing, we ended up putting out a bunch of comms that day that we made this announcement that was like kind of like Star Wars themed, May the 4th be with you kind of thing. Or like, you know, if your family has two kids, Luke and Leia, you get this much money, this and that. You know, that was like our early foray into trying to make policy relatable with mixed results. But I think we, we had some success that day. And we were like, hey, look. Rule number one of political social media, like the stuff doesn't have to be super dry and boring all the time. And it can be fun without being irreverent or unserious. And speaking of like you said, rule number one of political social media, like at the time, so this was, you said, spring 2014, this, you're pretty, like, you're kind of setting the precedent, right? Because there hadn't been, correct me if I'm wrong, but a ton of well done political social media to that point, right? Well, I mean, there were there were there were a few accounts that were, I think, doing it really well. Like we we borrowed and stole very liberally from the example that President Barack Obama set, obviously. But I think what ended up happening was we veered from it in that you know Barack Obama had all this sort of groundbreaking stuff that he'd done. No president obviously had ever done that. Uh, you know, that just showing him in a relatable way with either what we I guess we call influencers now, but like you know you know stars of the internet or. Here's Barack Obama casually in the cafeteria of the White House hanging out with people. Or, you know, Barack Obama's social had these tentpole moments, right? Like, oh, did you see that thing Obama did on social? That's pretty cool. Whereas I think 
you know, what we tried to do differently was instead of basing ourselves on major moments that will make people pay attention, you know, we've got an opposition leader, we've got a government to dethrone in an election. I think we have to throw a lot of content at the problem. And so what we ended up doing was let's cover Justin Trudeau like a journalist covers a beat, right? And let's just be on him every day reporting what he does and, you know, posting pictures from what he does, stuff that, you know, is, is ended up being pretty standard, I think, in political social media. Um, and and uh, apologies if there were other politicians who were doing it, you know, back then. But I thought, look, I don't, I don't see that in Canadian political social media right now. Why don't we just, why don't we just try that? And sort of, you know, everyone was on board and it ended up being a strategy that we pursued pretty much through the election. Okay. And so you ended up being named creative director for the campaign, right? For the election campaign? Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was a lot of fun too. That, you know, there was a lot of cool stuff that we had to do on the campaign that, you know, I credit directly to, you know, Tom's leadership of the campaign and to, and to the least Palm leader, I guess, to, to Justin Trudeau himself, who was willing to try stuff, you know, who was willing to show up and stand on the X, so to speak, you know, and, and, and have a good time with the things we were trying to do so long as, you know, we weren't making him appear to be unserious. So, for example, you know, there was, you know, he, was a, he was a boxer that was well known and he would do these boxing, you know, training sessions. Sometimes they'd be a photo up, sometimes not. But before the first debate of the 2015 campaign, we went to go film, you know, he did a boxing photo op. So we went to go shoot him, you know, do that. And then we got to do this like little voiceover about how, you know, he wasn't the typical politician who was just going to jog for a photo op. He's going to box, you know, trying to convey the image that here's a new guy, a youthful guy who's not afraid to mix it up a little bit. And by the way, who actually boxes as you, as you know. Okay. And I'm curious with like, did you know once the election was coming that you would eventually get the creative director? Like, was that a natural progression or did that kind of come as a surprise? No, I mean, I don't know if it was, if it was necessarily a surprise. I assumed that I would still have a say in how the social uh, would get done. But, you know, when an election comes around, it's a really, really good um, lesson in teamwork because whereas before we were doing stuff with, you know, four or five people on the digital team of the Liberal Party, all of a sudden you've got 20, right? Like the, new, the war room gets, swollen with people and it's a great thing you just have to learn like okay you know you're, you are a cog in this particular machine because we all have a collective goal to reach which is, which is getting the w on election day okay is that like is that overwhelming or da- a daunting task to face to be the creative director for a national election no because there were a lot of creative cooks in the pot and i think that the senior folks who've been there much longer than me were able to take a lot off my plate. Of course, we had an ad agency and, you know, that was doing a lot of that heavy lifting when it came to some of the, some of the TV ads you saw. But the other ones, I think you're right. Sometimes we'd be shooting them, producing something and we're like, is this it? Am I, am I going to put this out in the name of the leader of one of the major political parties? This thing that, you know, like, uh, you know, I, I watched the edit for or that like I was holding the camera for and that, uh, yeah, we edited on a plane on the way from uh, on the way between you know, Toronto and Ottawa. It was like there was, there was some really really surreal moments in politics where you're like, you know, we're just sitting here in a room with the guy who just won the election. So like the day after he won, Trudeau comes by the the little party offices to say uh, you know shake some hands, say thank you, and then we still had some videos to shoot that day, like our normal like uh, holiday greetings that kind of thing. And we're in the room all together, and I remember our videographer looks at him and goes. So what do we call you now? You know, like at the time we had, we had just called him Justin. So it was like a weird adjustment that 
that was us, just like with a Sony, you know, camcorder. I mean, good Sony. Sorry, Canon uh, camcorder, but like that was that was just us doing doing the stuff. And then, of course, the social media revolution meant a tremendous democratization of media. Like you say, everyone in their phone is now you know, on camera shooting, editing, credit. And talk to me about that. Those I did again. My knowledge of this election came from Wikipedia. So if any of it's <laughs> wrong, please let me know. Um, this is the first election I voted in, which is another fun fact. Oh, nice. But um, it was an eleven-week election, right? Yeah, eleven or eleven week was the was the road to the election. Talk to me about the grind of that, because I'm assuming you're traveling to all the different rallies and things like that. And the closest thing that I can kind of relate to that is when I did 67's playoffs. It wasn't quite that long, but I was like on the bus driving to random small towns all over Ontario for like a two month period with not much rest. I'm curious what that was like for you during the election. Yeah, so I was actually I was actually based in the Wallowing, so I only traveled uh, like once or twice um, for election related things. If I'm not mistaken, one of them though, you know, like I had this giant green screen like tarp. And I remember I had to like walk through Toronto dripping sweat. But most of the time I was in the war room. But that said, in a previous job um, uh, at CTV when I was producing, I got to be the like, sort of like house producer on the, uh, on the progressive conservative bus in the 2007 Ontario election campaign. So all the news organizations pulled their money and like I got to sit there as the producer on this bus. And that was 30 days from one town to another town in Ontario nonstop. And that was honestly as tiring as it may have been. It was like the thrill of a lifetime. I love that stuff. It was fun to like be on tour, you know? So all that said, I didn't really budge much during the campaign, but after we won um, and after sort of we fell into a rhythm and I started working in the prime minister's office, then yeah, I got to go on more trips and got to sort of be alongside as we traveled through Canada and got to go on some cool international trips where, you know, that grind is intense but obviously super thrilling and super fun and you know it it was just there's nothing like but bring me into that war room then during kind of if you're back in ottawa what's the process like when you have a team capturing capturing content at different rallies is it coming back to you are they posting live from the event like what does that look like what's the review process like too because you mentioned how like you'll be sitting there and you're like am i about to make a post for like a national political party is there like different layers of people it has to go through and like how does that impact trying to do coverage live like what does that whole thing look like yeah i mean that is that was the the crux of i think why we were able to have a little bit of success in the campaign on social because we worked out our approval processes um beforehand and we made them as streamlined as possible and i think you know when it, what we were driven by there was a news story if you look it up about like mitt romney's 2012 election campaign that was haunting all of us because there was some article that came out that was like Mitt Romney's tweets or Mitt Romney's Facebook posts need to go through like nine layers of approval, right? And we were all like, to hell with that. We are gonna we are gonna get this as streamlined as possible um, right away. You know, so is it a video script and how quickly can you get it to to Justin Trudeau to like look at it, approve it, and move on, and so forth. If it's a tweet, a Facebook post, what are we doing to make sure that as many eyes as possible get on that? But in a, in a way that, you know, there's one set of eyes that says yes, no. And if anyone has a problem with it, speak now or forever. Hold so we were able to sort of have this system whereby, yeah, like footage would come in from the road or photos would get in from the road. But then everybody knew exactly what was expected of them when it came time for like getting the content out the door and getting it approved. Quickly. And so like, I think that was, when we talk about the team effort on social media, hugely important. And, and when I talk to political social media managers to this day, you know, that is always something that, that still takes a tremendous amount of um, foresight and thought 
for everyone, which is like, how can we get these approvals scaled down and streamlined so that they're not clogging up the whole works? And so like, what is, obviously it's going to be a case by case, but like, what is the ideal scenario for that today? Like, is it similar to what you guys did back then? Like, what does that, that process for review look like? Like, how do you streamline it for yeah. today? And I think the first thing you do is make sure that you got buy-in from all the higher-ups, right? Like, so you well, we're managing upwards as a term that was taught to me when I got to the Liberal Party. So, you know, you want to manage upwards, make sure that all the higher-ups know what you're asking of them, how quickly you want to turn around. And that at the same time, if they give you feedback, uh, you know, ideally it'd be specific and actionable. And if they do that, then it's not up to me to like gum up the works and be like, no, can we really do this? You know, like I'm asking them for a quick response quickly and a million things I got to do during the day. So let's just get on the same page quickly and go. And so, you know, I think that the idea that it's insurmountable is kind of, is kind of, um, is maybe a little bit overwrought. Like it's, it's always easy to get a quick approval process in place. But I think a lot of the challenges are in, in politics when you've got social media is, first of all, making sure your principles. So your member of parliament, your congressman, your senator, your prime minister, whatever, making sure you understand the boundaries that they want in the posts, how much, you know, how many eyeballs do they want on the post or not? What do they trust you to post without them? And then what is the approval process within the office? Does the chief of staff have to weigh in? Does the director of communications always have to weigh in? Instagram stories was a big one, right? So on Instagram stories, we're like, look, if we've got to get approvals for stories, it's, it doesn't work, right? Like this is a this is a more spontaneous kind of way of communication when they first came out. When when Snapchat first came out, we were like, look, we need to streamline this a lot. And to be honest, there was a, there was a lot of buy-in um, from leadership on that kind of stuff. And I always push people now, if they're having trouble, if they're having trouble getting buy-in from their decoms and from their chiefs, to you know just like PowerPoint your way out of the problem, which is make a PowerPoint that shows. Fun, spontaneous content it goes up and does really, really well. And the more we add different layers of constipation to this post, it's going to be absolute trash and nothing. So if, I know it's been a few years, but if you could ballpark, like what was the, if you could estimate the total time from someone records that content to posting it. And then what kind of the, the total output for, for like a rally would be. I'm just curious from that perspective was like working in sports, like the rally is the equivalent to the game day. So it's just like, what does that output look like? That is a great question. So, you know, rallies, we ended up following, uh, falling into, into a pretty cool rhythm in that, you know, we kind of knew what we would get out of each rally. And by the way, rally footage, when you put it up on political social media, isn't necessarily going to get a lot of, you know, clicks or likes because it's expected, you know, a beautifully done montage of the prime minister or the prime minister to be speaking at a rally is always great. But, you know, I always say that you can really kill yourself doing a beautiful two minute, you know, piece and montage, but it won't necessarily do as well as a picture of like a politician and their dog just chilling. That is the reality of the social media world we live in. People want to see a little bit more authentic moments. I'm dancing around your question. To come back to your question, it could be as fast as a couple of hours. There'd be those moments of Zen where you'd be like, okay, we have our videographer at the rally. He's shot it beautifully. He's cut it beautifully, like in the van, you know? And, and uh, Matt Snowy was our first videographer. Daryl Dean was our first graphic designer. And sometimes Daryl would put like beautiful titles on the thing. And, you know, we'd have it and we'd be ready for approval. Uh, and everyone would be sort of alert and waiting because we wanted this footage out. And it could go up anywhere between two, three hours to you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting. Not necessarily for any other reason than just this is a political operation and people are busy and it takes a while to get approval sometimes. So you can be waiting who knows how, right? But like I think everyone 
past a certain point, understood, look, these are important um, things that we want to communicate to folks and we, we got to get it out. We got to get it out the door. And so you mentioned earlier the day after the election. Bring me back to the day of the election. What Wake up from when you go to bed. What is that day like? Well, I'll tell you about the night we won. I remember we won and I was in the war room and the war room had emptied out for election night. People had gone you know, to various different sort of uh, polling locations across the country or they were traveling with PM um, at headquarters in Montreal. And so I was just sitting there and I, the news came over first that we won. Not, it was just dead silence. And then, you know, I was it a half an hour, an hour later, who knows, the idea that we had won a majority, we were just, then it was, it was just, oh, like it really sunk. You know what I mean? And, and, and then we went to a party and we had a nice party and I remember hunched over my laptop tweeting from the party, thinking, okay, this is, this is my life for the next little while. But the next day, you know, it was, it was a lot of business as usual. And, uh, you know, PM, I think, went out to go do uh, a photo op thanking people in the subway um, in his home riding. And then there was like an eerie transition period where, you know, folks went into the prime minister's office, went into the transition office, and just sort of were doing business. And there was nothing much happening. So I remember that time being a struggle sometimes to find content, transition content that was going to be interesting or sexy, as opposed to just like the PM sitting at a desk in like an empty room somewhere. And then eventually from the little party offices, you started to see like a, a bit of an exodus because people were getting hired to go work in the government. And then the time came for inauguration, and uh, you may remember or may not remember the prime minister sort of like famous, uh, well, because it's 2015 clip, you know, that went very, very viral. And then from there, it was like, it was an absolute whirlwind, you know, first couple of years, whirlwind, just nuts. The attention on him at that time was unbelievable, unbelievable. And so, I mean, back to your point too, of when just going through the night, when you realize you won and had a majority, I wrote the numbers down here again, courtesy of Wikipedia. So feel free to correct these if they were, if they're wrong. I don't know these off by heart. Come on now. (laughs) Fair enough. But this was because going into the elect, Trudeau had 30, the liberal party had 36 seats going into the election. So to go from that to to a majority was just, it was, it was was bananas. Yeah. I, I can only imagine how great that was. And just, I know the, the the grind of tweeting from parties like i have been there so i understand obviously not i've never tweeted from a winning an election party but tweeted at many many parties in my life what's the what's the worst place or like the grungiest or most unexpected place you've ever tweeted for 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 work from i'm trying to think because like i lived work for so long like i wasn't going anywhere i wasn't like i just think like when people ask me if like I, i don't think of random places i just think of working at an arena in Sudbury that has like the world's spottiest Wi-Fi, and I'm like in a tunnel <laughs> under concrete trying to yes. get like, we just won in triple overtime. It's midnight. This game was supposed to end three hours ago and I'm trying to get like graphics and stuff posted of like that we just swept the second round of the playoffs and it was just like craziness. The players are celebrating. So I'm trying to grab like, and I was pretty much the only social person on the road. So it's like trying to record content, we'll upload content, we'll make graphics. And like it was insanity. Um, so that's probably like not necessarily, I mean, the submarine is a little bit grungy, but, um, not like anywhere It's like an expected place. Cause I worked in sports prior hockey, prior to football. Um, and so that was probably the most challenging place I've ever tweeted from. Yeah. I mean, that makes, that makes a whole lot of sense. And in politics, that's, you know, that you, when you're on the road, when you're traveling, that's kind of just the way that it is. You are expected to sit down on the floor of an airport, or in my case, I would answer my question by saying in the floor of the security shack 
at a car, I think it was a Toyota plant in Cambridge, Ontario, if I'm not wrong. And we had a video and we didn't have a videographer who could make it out to that event. So I just like literally shot it on my phone and I'm sitting there editing it on the floor of the security shack on iMovie. And I'm like, look, I, I kind of, I, I love, I loved it. I love, what am I going to say? I didn't love it. I loved it. It was fun. I felt like I was, you know, doing something really, really, uh, Adventures, you know, no matter how no matter how crappy sometimes the, um, the physical accommodations of, of working in politics can be. How often did you find yourself in the background of someone else's content while you were trying to capture your own content? All the freaking time. And let me tell you, my old my friends and my ex colleagues at CTV News would send me screenshots of like just like the feed of me just sitting there like doo 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 like dopely walking around in the background. Or checking the mic before the event because their camera feeds will be on for a while. And you know, you try to be not in the shot. Staffers should not be in the shot if, you know, one of the cardinal rules of, of political comms. But it happens. And I'd always hear from it from my, from my colleagues at CPDF. Funny you should bring that up. Yeah. No, I relate to that. I always think back. It was the first 67s draft that the new GM and assistant GM are working at. And there's a photo of them calling in the first draft pick. And there I am behind them with like my phone standing over top of the photo, like taken. So I, I, I saw a photo of you somewhere where you were in the background. So I was curious if that was a struggle oh, you had to go through. That was with the Irish prime minister. That was, I mean, I think if that's the one you're talking about, there's... <laughs> So the prime the 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 Taoiseach, the prime minister of Ireland, is welcoming us uh, in Dublin, and Prime Minister Trudeau's there, and they're sitting, you know, face to face in the chairs. And it's like the photo op for the first five minutes of the meeting, where they bring media in, everyone's clickety clickety, and then they kick everybody out. And there's just, I don't know why, you could see my head just sort of like right behind them, and I'm just there with my little camera phone, taking a little picture for the for the socials, and that you know that was probably one of the more notorious ones. There's I mean, I haven't saved in a folder somewhere like times where you just see like my, my big old head um, in the background behind the prime minister, usually squinting at my phone. Yeah, that's sometimes you're just working and you don't notice, and the journalist will, will holler at you to get the hell out of the shot. And you're like, oh, sorry, and then just in the background. <laughs> yeah. And so, when did you when did you learn that you were going to be moving into the prime minister's job? Like, when did you learn that you were going to do that job? Yeah, a few months after the election. And let me tell you, that was a rough few months for my uh, for my. Peace of mind because and so we win and you know working at the party was great but i was like look we won i would love to work at the prime minister's office it would be super cool and so the call came and it worked out and so i got there i think in february of 2016 um and then you know we hit the ground running and there was just so much to do and we were still staffing up like i think there were a lot of articles written at the time about how liberals are their gmo was taking it slow to staff up and you know i got there a few months later and the office was still somewhat empty, although you know, we started filling out the slots, but it was, you know, it was a while before we had a few more hands on social media. So it was, it was pretty crazy. And so does that mean your office was out of the parliament buildings? Yeah. So the prime minister's office, the actual building called the prime minister's office is right across the street from parliament. It's part of the House of Commons. At the time, it was called the Langevin Building. Uh, the name was changed because um, you know, Hector Louis Langevin was one of the architects of the, uh, the Indian residential school system. And a few years ago, the prime minister was like, we are changing the name of this building. Uh, you know, obviously, super glad that that happened. And so now it's just known as uh, the prime minister's office or well. So he also has an office inside um, the House of Commons itself, which is uh, often where we go to meet with him or to do video shoots uh, when it came to official messages to the uh, 
Okay. And once he became prime minister, were you more running kind of both accounts still? Still like the, because now you're not running the liberal account, you're running the prime minister of Canada. And were you still running the Justin Trudeau account? Yeah. So the Justin Trudeau accounts were the ones that, that we were running. Uh, the liberal party, obviously, we couldn't touch that anymore like, in government. So you're not using a government resource to, to do anything to do with the liberal party accounts. And then the, the account that a lot of people also know on Twitter, at Canadian PM, um, that's run by the bureaucracy. So same thing, we don't, we don't touch that account. So we really focused um, you know, on, on you know, managing those personal accounts. And at the time, his Instagram account like I said, was kind of an occasional thing. And so you know, we took that on as well with everyone's blessing and huge collaboration of obviously the Prime Minister's photographer, who's, who's so well-known and renowned, Adam Scotty, who you know, it's such a dream to work with when it comes to all that stuff as well. And, you know, the prime minister was on board, same thing. And we're like, boss, all right, there's this thing called Snapchat. He's like, yeah, yeah, I know. And like, what do you, what do you want to do? You know, and like, and he's, he's into it. Um, but he was always very candid about the fact. He's like, look, Canadians don't expect me to be on social media all day. They know I'm not, I'm not trying to pretend I am, right? Like he's got this communication staff that he works with. And that's, you know, that's pretty standard in political social media right now. Although you do have, of course, the, the odd unicorn who does it exclusively themselves. And, and do I think that's, that's a much you know, more effective way of running social media? The, the answer is hard depends there because it depends what kind of, what kind of goals you're trying to achieve as a politician. And so how big did the, did the social and content team or the digital team end up getting during your time there? Not very big, my dude, because as, <laughs> as any political, as any political social media office will tell you, uh, there's just, it's very short. Right? Like, so it's, it's, it's a department that never has as many bodies as you might expect for the amount of content that's being churned out. And that's just, you know, that's just popular. Of course, political offices are always kind of understaffed, especially at, you know, the member of parliament level where. Is it one person who is the spokesperson, communications person, special assistant, and when they have a minute, the social media? Right? Like that's too often that's the case, and I understand that. Obviously, I do find that sometimes social get, goes to the bottom of the, the sort of hierarchy of needs in a politician's office just because of the insane. And how many, like you mentioned, Snapchat? Like how many platforms were you posting on at a given time? Yeah, I mean, it, it all depended, right? And at the time. You know, because we were somewhat short-staffed, it was hard to sort of customize things for each platform. I used to say, like, we only got two hands, right? So if you're at the thing and you're trying to shoot for Snap or Instagram Stories, uh, you know, plus do a live. At the time, live was just starting. You know, Instagram Live. The first Instagram Live we ever did was during the PM's term. I think uh, Malala had come to the House of Commons, so they had a they had a meet and greet, and that was the first time we went live on IG. Uh, you know, it was a lot. So we couldn't always post everything to every platform. And I had this like this this really, really intense fear of failure in terms of like the platforms becoming ghost towns. Oh, here's, you know, here's his IG that you never post to. How come you never post it? So I, I tried as much as we could to, to get a churn going as much as you can on the different platforms, but you really that was ad hoc. Like really now to to be successful, I think people will the most successful people have, you know, strategies for what platform you're going to feed and water when with what kind of content. For example, at the time uh, we started the Prime Minister's LinkedIn, you know, and, you know, he was into that, but we don't post every single time, day to day on LinkedIn. The PM personally loved Quora, you know, the question and answer website, okay? So he's like, can we do a Quora Q&A? Absolutely, boss, let's do it. I'm into it. Yeah, but how often are you going to do one of those? So finding that strategy of like, 
which platforms you go to when was something that it took us a while, I think, to find our rhythm. And now what I say, would I still do things the same way? I don't know, right? Because people do, do people want to read a thousand tweets a day from a politician? Uh, I don't know. I really don't know. You know it's, it's something that I, I think about all, all the time. On LinkedIn, did you ever like accidentally click on someone's profile when you're managing the PM's account and then now that person's going to get a notification that Justin Trudeau just viewed your profile? Short answer. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That happened every once in a while. I mean, you know, there was that. There was, I think one time, I think towards the end of my time there, I was I was uh, doing some research on something. And look, I, I accidentally tweeted from the prime minister's account, like the name of the thing that I was looking for. You know, like you get that sometimes. Yeah, you know, there were there were a couple moments where I'm like, ah, shit, I just just like that thing. Like, was I was I me? Was I the PM? Was I something? Was I the test account? You know, like, but in general, we 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 tended to avoid uh, disasters like that. No, I ask because I'm like ninety percent sure that Swish Goswami, who's just true fan CEO, which sponsors this podcast, I also work with them on some stuff. I'm pretty sure Trudeau looked at his profile one time, and he was like. It is highly possible. It is highly possible. You never know, right? Yeah. And he's highly like, he's got 140K or something like that on LinkedIn. So like he would have been probably prominent on LinkedIn at the time. But um, that's why I asked that question because I think that happened to him. And to your point too of like, of tweeting accidentally from the wrong account. Like I can remember one of my coworkers at the Red Blacks going to the cottage and posting on their Snapchat story, like their personal story about their trip to yeah. the cottage without realizing they're on the Red Blacks account. And like that stuff definitely happens all the time. And so, <laughs> and also this is actually something I saw in a photo. Were you still using a BlackBerry in 2017? Oh, hell yeah. I mean, look, I will say this. There was a significant amount of my personal data plan sacrificed for the country. Okay. And all of us did. Because at the time, we still had Blackberries, which like literally didn't run the social media apps. Or if they did, it would run them at the So that's life, right? Like we, sometimes we have to run these apps from our personal phones stream press conferences on my personal phone just brutal but eventually we we got uh, government iphone which is great and they the full credit to our government it team they like gave us these really really sleek devices that were quite secure you know i say secure pm knock wood his socials have never been hacked which is great you know like we would literally uh, put it this way we would we would take we would take extraordinarily analog steps for password security which was which was always sort of like our our failsafe and so I'm curious, like you kind of, you mentioned, alluded to it a little bit earlier, but what kind of content works best for the prime minister and how do you balance, because you said it's kind of the personal content, him chilling at home with his dog. How do you balance wanting to optimize content for social, but also knowing that this is a, a globe, like a, a country's leader. So you, there's obviously stuff that you're going to have to post that might not necessarily perform well. Like how do you balance those things and what does work best? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's obviously in my, in my job now, which I know we're going to talk about. A lot of what I talk about to, to audiences, uh, you know, almost on a weekly basis, which is how can a politician be effective while also, you know, talking about uh, their personal life in a relatable way on social media. And that it's not always possible. But what, you, what I said about the dog reminds me, you know, not a lot of people know the prime minister has a dog. I mean, the dog doesn't end up on social media a lot. It's like a weird side thought I'm having. Right? But <laughs> nice dog. Nice dog. But I think the key is to think of it this way. Right. When you are managing social media for a politician, when you are a politician on social media, I think super important, the ones who have the most success are the ones who try to come across as much as they can as a regular person who has a job in politics 
as opposed to a politician who is like using their social media as an announcement machine purely for work only. We try to say, you know, think about using social media like you like to see your friends' social media. Think about, you know, what is relatable to, to you when you look at posts you like, meme accounts you like, brand accounts you like. And there, trust me, there's nothing cringier than those freaking brands that try to act human, you know, on, on Twitter and various social media platforms. It doesn't have to be, you don't, you don't have to be like brand X, uh, you know, telling you that uh, their brand of coffee is Bay or whatever the hell, you know, they're trying to do. But, you know what I mean? Like, like I'm looking at a guitar pick right now. So I'm like, guitar picks are Bay. You know, like, who, like nobody cares about that stuff, right? Like, what's important is that you show that you're a human being, warts and all as much as you can without being, like I said, like irreverent or unserious in the work that you're trying to do. So when that comes to the prime minister, you know, people were very curious about his family, his personal life. People were very curious about his personal life, his hobbies, his jogging. There was a picture of him just like in a t-shirt from a, I think a brewery in Thunder Bay, you know, and that caused a sensation because he was just like a regular guy on a hike with his family. And as the years go by and the pressures of office take over, you know, it, it, it tightens up a little bit, uh, necessarily so. But as much as, and I think they do a good job now, people who are, who are in that office, obviously, you know, I'm biased. Those are my colleagues. I think for all of the years that have gone by and for all of the crap that, that you go through in a life in politics and another election has come and gone, you know, they're, they're still able to, to, to portray the prime minister as a guy who's just like his own guy with his own opinions, with, with his own life, who likes to weigh in on social and, and pull back the curtain when he can as much as he can. Were you, I'm pretty sure this, when Obama came to Ottawa, were you there for that? Yeah, that yeah, right? I was there. That was great. What, Memorable. What was that? What was that like? It was hectic and crazy. I think you're talking about the Three Amigos Summit um, yes. when the president of Mexico came as well. Uh, yeah, that was, that, was, that was super fun. It was a crazy busy day. It was like whirlwind. I don't even think Obama slept here. Here, I slept in Ottawa, but it it was a lot of fun because you got to 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 think that you were like witnessing this cool moment, this like unique moment, as much as possible. Like Obama, you know, in Canada, doing doing the thing that Canadians expect—an American president coming to Canada and showing respect and praising the nature of our special relationship with Canadians, you know, love and appreciate. Um, and it was just, it was you know, something I'd never forget. And then of course, getting to visit Obama at the White House, um, our first go around down there was also like just the craziest day. So much fun. I still remember to your point about how you guys did, a, you guys were looking to make Justin just look kind of like a regular guy that has this job. I remember that trip that when Obama, when Obama came, I saw a tweet. I think it was went viral within Ottawa at least. And it was like Obama took like an 18 car motorcade to get to parliament. And I'm like 99% sure Justin Trudeau took an Uber, like just to <laughs> him, like being a regular person. Like that was, I just remember that tweet sticking out. Cause that's just the perception between the two guys is like Justin Trudeau is doing the very normal person thing to get to this global summit for lack of a better, you know what yeah. I mean? Like it was just his perception. Now he doesn't take Ubers obviously, but like he would, he would walk to the office every once in a while. I don't know if he still does. He'd walk from his place to Parliament just like, because he does, or at least in my day anyway, you know, he does make these efforts, like, as much as he can to just try to do a normal thing, you know, like, he really, he really, he really understands that you have to do those things in order to sort of, like, be a little bit grounded as much as you can, you know, even if you're in the bubble of being Prime Minister. I remember, uh, you know, 
to that end, people, you know, people would often insult uh, Justin Trudeau and say, oh, he's selfie boy, Mr. Selfie, selfie this, selfie that. But really, they would not post a lot of selfies. You know, it's not like he would send us selfies to post on social media. But that day with Barack Obama, uh, they took one in the office together and, you know, we posted, of course, it went like mega, whatever. But, you know, when people insult him as selfie boy, I'd always be like, what? First of all, he goes to events and people want to take pictures with him. So he sits there and, you know, he's very happy to do it. He would always say he would get energized from those kinds of interactions, whereas his father as prime minister was a little bit more private. Um, but at the same time, look what you see now. Every single politician, right, left, center, taking selfies all the time, posting selfies all the time, right? Like this, this idea that he was sort of criticized for that never, it never sat right with him, you know? Obviously, like with that, that Obama selfie, like you post that, you know, this is going to go nuts on social. You know, it's going to perform well. What is some content that you thought was going to do really well that didn't? Because I found working in social, it's always like the content piece you spend 12 hours working on that will get nothing. And then you'll take like some half blurry selfie and post it that does like the best post you've made the last three months. Totally. Could not have said it better myself. That's exactly the experience we had over and over and over again. And I, and I, I think... You, you know the reason why, right? Spontaneity, showing something a little bit unexpected. If it's unexpected and interesting, it doesn't matter how freaking blurry the photo is, people will love it, right? Because it's relatable to the way people take pictures on their own. And so from a, from a like, personal life side, of course, uh, a picture of, of JT and his kids and his family in the basement, you know, painting the walls is going gonna, is gonna to be a huge success. And a more produced piece or infographic that we spent forever on trying to pitch Canadians on some policy that's like medicine they have to take down is never going to be well, even though it's really important. And the sort of corollary to that is when it comes to talking about policy, not just personal, right? Like the majority of the posts are about the business of being prime minister, the business of being government. And so we'd always struggle with, man, we worked our ass off on this thing and it didn't do that well. And so, especially when it came to infographics, we, we learned the hard way after a lot of practice that people don't want to click on elaborate infographics on social media. They just, and so one day we had a really, really positive jobs report um, when we'd been in office for a while. And it was like the lowest unemployment in Canada in 40 years. And so I was like, I was like, you know, like walking through the desert, starving for some engagement. And finally we had this amazing piece of good news for the country. And I was like, all right, one more try. You know, and we just, we just put, I think it was like white words on a red background, or red words on the right background. Lowest unemployment in 40 years. And that ended up being one of the most um, engaged with pieces of policy content uh, we'd done um, in his time in office, uh, keeping it super simple, direct to the point. And by then, there were plenty of accounts that had caught on. And I ha obviously have to give credit to conservative leading accounts who are really, really good, right? Like just conveying a simple, effective message, one or two lines on a background just get people's attention. Obviously, you know, we're not going to talk about whether or not I agree with the value of that um, from an ideological perspective, but at a certain point, you know, you have to understand that people only have one click to give and they've only got a few seconds with their eyeballs. And then talk to me about growing the account. Cause when, when he became prime minister, he had around 2 million today. He's at 5.6 was probably a little bit lower than that when you left, but what does growing his accounts look like? Like, is that an active part of the strategy or is that just kind of something that happens organically through those temple ones? Like when he's taking a selfie with Obama, like naturally it's going to grow. Like what does growing his account look like for you guys? Yeah. I mean, I, I'll tell you this, there was never really, like we never really made attempts to like 
growth hack or do any of the tactics, first of all, that Facebook would end up cracking down on while I was still at the PMO, um, or like to try to sort of like trickily get people to, to like or follow that kind of thing. I think when it comes to organic content, what you're trying to do is just put out stuff that I guess I would phrase it as you're trying to balance the ice cream with the broccoli, right? So you're trying to, you have to give people the broccoli on social media because you're a politician and you're trying to show that you're doing that hard work and flexing those muscles. And if people will agree with you, great. And if they'll click like, great. And you know, you've got a small segment of the audience that loves you and a small segment of the audience that's just going to troll the living hell out of you and tell you you're a communist who's ruining Canada. And then you have the middle who may or may not, right? But at the same time, you kind of also know after a certain point that this picture will do well or this holiday greeting will do well in this community. Um, so you know that the account will grow sort of uh, according to a predicted rhythm with spikes when there is something interesting happens, when there is a major national crisis. And so what I've noticed in the past year on Instagram, talking to politicians and their team, excuse me, is that the pandemic has affected the reach of so many politicians and government accounts around the world so, so immensely and has really brought eyeballs to those accounts because in times of crisis, people will look to the government for instruction, for for reassurance, for literally just official news about lockdowns and all the rest. And there's follower spikes everywhere, all around the government, all around the world. It's it's pretty intense to to see what had happened. Interesting. Yeah. And when did you... When did you ultimately make the decision to leave the prime minister's office? Like when did you, for the job in Instagram, like when did that become a reality? You know, it's funny because I feel like we didn't actually talk about why I decided to get into politics. I, I had, I had you know, met Katie Telford at a party and thought, oh, this is an interesting idea. I got into politics. I think the driving force was this idea that, um, you know, previous uh, liberal leaders, had, a couple of previous liberal leaders had really been the victim of, of uh, a lot of attack ads um, from previous conservative leaders, not to get partisan at all, but I thought, look, if I could go help out in comms and help the next liberal leader sort of defend themselves against the onslaught that people knew was going to come, right? Like the negative ads and the attack ads and all that. If we could come back with like a little bit more of a, like a spirited defense, if we could throw an uppercut here and there, maybe that would be helpful. And I genuinely thought that in 2019, I would stick around and do the same thing. And, and hopefully, you know, we'd, we'd have a little bit of success as well. But I definitely, by the early 2019 time, I was like, I definitely thought this is going to be it, right? Like election 2019, win or lose, I'm out. And it's been great because politics is a lot of things, but obviously it's a, it's a huge grind. And I thought, okay, I, I had done sort of uh, my, my share there and, and it was time to move on. That said, uh, you know, Instagram uh, opportunity, Instagram had this opportunity that opened up and I was like, look, Win or lose, this is the kind of thing that, that I would want to do anyway. Um, and my health was not great at that time. There was, there was a lot of like sort of like stress-related stuff. And, you know, everyone in politics goes through this kind of thing. A lot, a lot of people have written uh, about the stress of working in politics. And I am not at all trying to say that, you know, sitting at a desk tweeting is physically taxing in any way. Just after a certain point, being on call 24-7 is like, that's, that's a lot. And... I could make it last at the end of 2019 or this amazing opportunity has come up. So I'm going to go. And it was kind of like right along the lines of what I wanted to do. So, you know, it's time to go. Despite it being along the lines of what you wanted to do and you were, you were going through burnout, you were experiencing, you're going to get to that stage. Was it still a difficult decision for you to make? Hugely so. Hugely so. I literally 
uh, you know, I, I wondered to my to my perspective boss, look, can I can I come after the election? And he was like, no, hell no. We have an opportunity. We need we need someone now to sit in the office and do the things. So I certainly was torn. I loved politics, but in the end, it was like, and I still love it for sure. In the end, it was like, look, I I'm I'm burning out, like you said, a bit at the end of my rope, and there's also this cool thing happening. So let's just let's just jump in and do it, and whatever happens. happens. Did you tell Justin yourself when you were leaving? Like, what was that conversation like? Oh man, let me tell you that that is that memory is burned in me because to you know to get time on the prime minister's calendar as a staffer for a project that you're working on is a process. You need to you need to you know go to the scheduler, get approval from your boss, like make sure everything's legit. You know, brief the PM, the whole thing, and then you've got your ten minutes to shoot your video, and the PM arrives in the room, and you know you, you do your thing, and you know. He was always very flexible, but like the rule of thumb is like never waste the prime minister's time. You know, he's coming in the room because he's ready, he's briefed, we're briefing quickly, good to go. Like you're unready, that's like it's kind of like a bit of a, you know, not a bit of a, a faux pas. Don't do that to a politician. But for whatever the hell reason, I don't know what got into me. I just like walked towards his office. I remember Adam Scotty, the photographer, was was outside, and I guess he must have seen the look on my face. He's like, dude, are you okay? And I was like. Talk to the boss for a minute. He's like, "Yeah, yeah go ahead, go ahead." I, I, like, never in a million years would I have done that before or after. I guess I don't know what possessed me to do that. But I walked in, and same thing. The prime minister was like, "Are you all right, dude?" And I was like, "Yeah, I don't think he told me to." But he's like, "Are you all right?" And I was like, "Yeah, uh, well, listen, boss, I can tell you. Uh, you know, I think uh, it's time for me to go. I'm going to go to Instagram. I've got this opportunity." And then he was like, "Oh, what? Like, relax. It's fine. Don't worry about it. You know, like, and like, you know." He gave me a hug, and, and that was that. And then, you know, it was such a huge weight off my shoulders. But I mean, he's a piece of piece. I'm just for the country. What does he care about me leaving with my big news? It's politics. People come and go all the time. So he was super cool about it. And then, you know, we had a tradition in the office. Everyone who leaves then eventually gets to have a little sit down and debrief with them. And that was nice. And, you know, it, was, it was nice to just say, like, a, a real goodbye after that. And that was that. Did you make sure on your last day your outfit was slim fitting as per requested? <laughs> <laughs> no, so Scott, yeah, trust me, the politics 15 is very real. It was more like a politics 15 or 30, um, you know, pounds that I put on, late nights, junk food, and all the rest. And Adam Scott, a photographer, like, joked around, like, hey, for your, for your goodbye photo, wear something a little bit slim. But uh, screw it. Whatever I've got on, I've got on. So that's that. And then, so, so now talk to me about Instagram. Talk to me about day one. What's it like? You get to DC, go to the office for the first time. Like, what is, what is that like? Well, day one was was at headquarters in, in Menlo Park, California, like near Palo Alto, because that is where you know, headquarters are, and um, new people are literally called noobs in the, in the system. Uh, we get our, our orientation, so that was that was. I was watching the show Silicon Valley before that, you know, and like trying to absorb as many stereotypes as I possibly could about working in tech. And I get there, and I'm like, oh my god, a lot of them are true, you know. But in a good way, in a way that it's like a community of people working in this vast, vast company um, with its own sort of rituals and code words and, and things to sort of and things to consider and things to be mindful of. And so I got there and it was it was great. I had a lot of fun. Like I kind of I guess I was expecting it, and there I am, like riding my little bicycle around the Facebook campus and posing for a photo by the giant Instagram logo. And I was like, look, dude, just dive all the way in, you know. And I often said to myself, I got into politics because when I left news, I wanted to be part of a team, right? 
even if it's as simple as politics where it's like, yeah, red team good, blue team bad, you know, that kind of thing. I get to this new experience, which is like a massive mega corporation. And I was like, just, just have fun and be part of it. And like everyone, super nice orientation was, you know, a dream. There happened to be a, a giant um, conference for my department that week. So I stayed on for a couple of days to go to that conference to get oriented and meet a bunch of people. It was, it was like, drink, as they say, drinking from the fire. I was like, for real, for real. Especially, you know, working in politics for five years, learning all the weird political and government abbreviations and acronyms. And then you get to tech and it's a whole other, you know, book like this of abbreviations and acronyms to learn. And so I was like, ah, shit, I got to do this all over again. So, you know, it was worthwhile. So what is day-to-day like working for Instagram? I mean, obviously the day-to-day has changed a lot since the pandemic, since we've been working from home for what, like 13, 14 months now. So, you know, I've now been at the company working from home a lot longer than I ever was working from the DC office. And the day-to-day... You know, my job focuses on a few different things. The first one is making sure that my colleagues around the world have what they need to talk to political staff and governments and nonpartisan agencies about how to use Instagram as best they can. So that's making sure that, you know, the technical manuals, which I, which I write and my team writes, or the, the sort of like uh, the links to the information that they need, or the, the literal like PowerPoint decks or the keynote decks that we use to talk to people and give presentations. And that's actually, you know, giving those presentations as well, whether it's one-on-one to a political office or government that's asked for some special training or to a training of like a few hundred staff of a certain government or a certain agency or organization. So that's kind of like the first part of the job, which is a lot of fun, which is getting, yes, in part to tell my old stories from the old days and my day in PMO, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. But also like talking about the new things and the way that Instagram has changed a lot, even just in the past year and a half since the pandemic came out and the app has been, you know, updated so many times with all kinds of new features. Is it's really it's really a lot of fun to do that. Um, second part I would say is what we call like civic engagement. So that is um, I voted and vote stickers. So for example, in the Canada election in 2019, um, we had vote stickers that went up. Um, on the app. So those were designed by a contest at, at OCAD University, and uh, there was a winner who was selected. And then so all around the world, we kind of do stuff like that. Not always a contest, but you know, we'll, we'll find a really cool local artist to design this voter I voted sticker and get them into the stories trade. So you know, the day before the election, the day of the election, people can really sort of share that they participated in democracy and in the voting process, and at the same time, kind of engage their friends to, to think, well, ah, it's time to vote. Let me vote. Um, and then I guess there's another part that I started to work on, um, a little bit more, uh, in the context of U.S. election, which is media literacy. So, uh, working with different media literacy and fact-checking organizations to put out programs to sort of help people be a little bit more media literate to spot hoaxes, false news. So, you know, day to day, it's always an adventure, right? Because everything you can be working on can be disrupted when a high profile politician is locked out of their Instagram account. All right, we gotta fix this. Or when there's a bug that's affecting. So there's a, there's there's never a dull moment. I will tell you. So how do you manage all of these all the contacts that you have? Because you're I'm assuming you're dealing with governments and so people working social and governments all around the world. So how do you kind of stay on top of everything? Who's your contact? Where? Who's in power? Where? When's an election coming up? Like how do you keep track of all that? Because that just sounds dizzying. Yeah, I wonder that to myself sometimes, but it's it's actually the answer is a little bit simpler than than it seems because 
you know, we are obviously a part of the Facebook company and we get the opportunity to work with our colleagues and offices around the world who are, I guess, technically would be considered working for the Facebook app. Um, uh, but us as the Instagram politics and government team, which is really only like four people, um, get to work with them um, all over the world and then sort of uh, work with them on their relationships with governments and with politicians and so forth. So for example, if a colleague in Germany is like, hey, listen, uh, the German Ministry of Foreign Affairs um, embassy staff from around the world could really use some love and they could really use a sort of Instagram best practices tutorial. That's where we'll come in and kind of like do that that specialized training with them. So, you know, to keep track of it is, is obviously complicated because there's no possible way that, you know, a small team can keep track of all that. But we have like, as a primary mission to try to keep up those good relationships with our colleagues around the world, first and foremost, to get to know like what it is it what is it that they need when they talk to governments? Like what is it are the governments telling them about? How's it going with usage of Instagram um, for these organizations globally? And it's just Instagram, right? Like it's not Instagram and Facebook. Well, I mean, like those those folks are the ones who handle the Facebook app um, requests and Facebook app sort of tasks and everyday stuff, like the high level stuff, yes, but also like the can you verify this? Can you get me back into this account from which I'm I'm locked out? So I, yeah, I focus myself and the team I'm on, we focus exclusively on Instagram. Just that, you know, there's four or five of us based in the United States, whereas, of course, we have those dozens of colleagues around the world that we then sort of like interface with. Speaking of verification, how many personal friends and family have asked you if you have the power to verify them or not? You know, surprisingly, not a lot. Personal friends and family, they kind of know the deal. Like, I'm sorry, I can't verify you. I do occasionally get the like long lost person who's like, hey, what's up? By the way, uh, can you look into this or can you verify this? And like, there is, trust me when I say there is a protocol that that cannot be not followed. And if, you know, like we have to stick to it and those decisions are like specifically taken out of our hands, uh, you know, if, if there's any, if there's any time we try to curry favor or do something not so kosher with for a friend, the system catches it right away. Yeah. Trust me, I've tried, no, just kidding. I'm not very <laughs> <laughs> and so... What are the challenge, like, cause you said you're a team of four. And so Grant, so you're mainly interfacing with for like the reps in the different countries, essentially more so than the, the parties, like the, the people working in themselves. Okay. So that probably makes dealing with the different time zones better, easier then, right? A little bit easier. You know, certainly there's a, I would say a bias um, towards, um, you know, Europe and West Africa, just because time wise, that's what we're able to do in terms of like direct um, outreach to folks, for example, at number 10 Downing Street in the UK. So do they need um, a tutorial or a presentation or the European Parliament? I've done so far a lot of stuff with the European Parliament and their staff because they're just such a huge organization. But obviously when it comes to working on stuff with Japan or, or Indonesia or Singapore, you know, that's 12, 13 hours ahead. And it's, it's just very tricky to always make that work. But we, we try our best, you know, like we, we try to keep up as much as we can two-way communication. The hours are a bit weird, especially in tech where, you know, the focus is on work-life balance way more than it ever is in politics, but we try to make it work. What are some of those other differences or even like adjust things you had to adjust to? You mentioned kind of like the, the lingo and the language, of course, but like, what are some other things that you had to adjust going from politics to tech? I think number first and foremost was the adrenaline drop off 100% because in politics, we are all you know, workaholics to a varying degree. And the stuff you're doing is is always like one fire after another. It's stuff that's, you know, for the country, you're working for the country, it's going to be presented as a bill, you know, in the House of Commons, it's something the Prime Minister said, it's a video, something the Prime Minister did, you're just vibrating 
at this like incredibly busy frequency all the time. Whereas you get to tech and literally the first thing that happens when you pop open your, your, your computer at Facebook is like this thing saying like, hi, I'm Balance Bot. And I'm here to make sure that you don't uh, necessarily have to answer messages after hours. You can turn me off if you want. So of course I'm turning it off because I'm still, uh, I'm still that sort of like you know adrenaline junkie at first. But I've learned to appreciate Balance Bot and all the other sort of ways in which um, you know the job is a little bit more easy on your constitution. And my manager's actually been, been great at that. He's a former Politico as well. He's like relax you know it's not life and death here and you know there's a lot of work to be done but it'll just get done you don't have to be up at 9 a.m on a saturday tweeting right so how do you replace that adrenaline in your life then you know because it's obviously it's it's probably some like just recovery time from doing that for so many years but you're still got to be like craving that adrenaline at some point that's a good question and i think first and foremost comes the realization that that level of adrenaline is fundamentally unhealthy you know and having two phones glued to your hands at all times is maybe not the best way to operate uh, and to balance your personal and professional life. And then maybe it can't be replaced. You know, obviously, when the U.S. election came around, all of us were 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 really working our butts off to just to like support as best we could, to engage voters as best we could, and and, and to to make sure that our app was showing up civically, um, you know, in the in the best possible way. Uh, and that was a bit of like an election thrill in, in what I had experienced in the past. Obviously not the same, but at the same time, it's like, cool, I'm not on call 24-7 and that's good. I'm not less useful to society because I'm, I'm not constantly on my phones. And honestly, it, it took a lot of, of, of working on that, right? And just realizing, God, how do I deal with this? You know, but it, eventually it, it fades away. Was there any like after you kind of once you go through that adjustment period, is there any like quote unquote like catching up on life now that you're not working all the time, you're not on call all the time, like catching up with little friends or doing things you wish you had the time for when you're working in politics? Is there anything like that? Yeah, I mean, you know, in, in politics, you, you do have the downtime, it's just the downtime is interrupted at any time by things beeping on your phone. So, you know, it's funny, like literally just like sitting and reading. Or, you know, I've always wanted to own like a, like a meat smoker. So I bought like a, a Weber smoker and like, I'll spend some time smoking meat, like just, just like downtime stuff. You can see behind me, you know, I, I busted out the electric drums when quarantine happened to try to like, you know, uh, to try to make that something of a hobby though I, I rarely play them. So it's, you know, there, there's all kinds of different ways to fill time. I don't think anything will ever replace it. But I think it's coming to the realization that like it's okay to not be, uh, you know, working on this sort of staffer staffer energy all the time. What was the adjustment to to work from home like for you guys? Pretty pretty seamless, you know. I think um, I consider myself, you know, lucky and, and blessed that I have a white collar office job that would was able to transition seamlessly um, to work from home. You know, and there's a lot of people out there who didn't have that luxury. And, you know, Zoom is inconvenient and you get Zoom fatigue. And certainly it feels like the days have no beginning and no end. You just sort of get up and are at work and eventually realize, oh, I should stop working at one point during this day. And But it's it's honestly been fine, you know. And I think um, a couple of, uh, of Facebook offices are, are gearing up to go back to work, uh, at least at reduced capacity. I'm sure the D.C. office uh, will follow in short order, you know, now that we're, a lot of us down here are vaccinated. 
um, even though Canada has now eclipsed vaccination rates. I'm so proud of my, I'm so proud of, of, of Canada for doing that, eclipsed the US in vaccination rates. So yeah, the, the, the transition was tricky, but it wasn't anything that we couldn't handle. And like, you know, part of the job that I love the most, presenting to audiences and traveling and getting to do like all, you know, cool stuff overseas, it's, you know, now I do it on webinar and, and, and that's fine. Would I like to travel again? Of course, for sure. And so pre-pandemic, like how often were you, were you traveling to give these presentations and stuff? Yeah, I mean, it's tough to say. I mean, I think I went on like four or five big trips uh, that first year, which was a lot of fun. And, you know, whether I'm in California or we had done some stuff at the European Parliament in Belgium, it's, it's kind of the same vibe, which I enjoy, right? Like traveling, giving a presentation, talking to people and finding out what's on their mind. Like what do political staffers today, uh, you know, have on their mind to question you about when they're talking about Instagram and Facebook? And very often, you know, I'm, I'm up there giving a pretty high level presentation and you'll get the high level questions, which is like, how do I make content that connects with an audience and, and how do I grow my following and, and stuff we've talked about. But there's always a million smaller technical questions that you never think to think about that you're like, okay, for folks who are, who are, who are working on this day to day, this is what's on their mind. It's really helpful to know, understand. What are some of those things that surprised you? The, like you said, there's those millions little questions, but like what are some of those big things that surprised you the most when you came over to Instagram that like even from your experience working in politics that you didn't expect? Like what? Like, what do you mean? I don't know. Maybe like if there was something about the platform or something, you know, like you use the platform day in and day out and you get to Instagram and you're like, you can do that with it. Like, was there anything oh. like that? <laughs> well, that's, that's an interesting question because, you know, we arrived just as Instagram was like rolling out a million and one new features. And so there were so many things that for us had been like a struggle or a big production and now they're just sort of like, you know, part of the everyday experience on Instagram. For example, Instagram Live. Do you remember when Instagram Live came out? It was it was a bit of a janky feature. It was it was new, it was rough and ready, it was great, it was it was a miracle. But now it's like a lot more solid and you've got, you know, the ability to add three people to your chat. And I'm just like, why wouldn't you everybody use this? This is so cool. Because you know, when I'm giving talks, I'm trying not to be like a salesman for the product. Try not to be like Instagram is the greatest to the expect you know to the exclusion of all other social media platforms. I don't want to be like that at all. And you know, often we'll, the conversation will talk about social media in general, and I'll find myself using the word like tweet generically as a filler for post, right? Just because that office mentality just was like it was always you know Twitter first in the early days until we brought in a more robust Instagram presence or whatever. So like I'll catch myself doing that, be like. Huh. You know, at least I can sort of talk about it in a real way. If you're sitting down with an audience of people and I'm sitting there going like, in, you know, Instagram is the best and use all this kind of stuff and, and don't use anything else. Who's going to take me seriously? Nobody. Right. Like I, I feel like half the time, you know, what they want is a conversation about social media. And I'm, that's like what I love more than anything. So as part of your presentation, obviously not it's mainly folks on Instagram, but is there elements where it's like how to use Instagram cohesively with the other social media to have like an overarching strategy? Like that's a part of your, your conversations. I always get that question at every presentation I get, which is how do you know what content goes on what platform or we are short staffed. We have limited hands and limited bodies. So if I'm cutting a video, that video is going to be horizontal for Facebook and Twitter and not necessarily, for example, vertical for stories. So what do you suggest? Right. And then it's sort of like my job to, you know, recommend strategies or different ways to think about an event 
that has happened that day and how you create different pieces of content around it, even if you're short staffed. For example, Instagram stories, which I absolutely love for the political world because it allows you to like break up a political concept or a political uh, theory or bill that you wanna pass into short bites that allow you to use like the stickers, like the question sticker, the poll sticker, all this kind of ways of thinking about uh, a policy that you might not get in a longer video, right? So you can break up the experience and have it be a little more attractive for people. Sorry to sound like an Instagram salesman there. <laughs> no, that's okay. And you said you're also putting together like technical guides. Are these like publicly available guides or guides that just people working in government have access to? Oh yeah, no, those are those are all publicly available. In fact, they are specifically made publicly available because we don't ever want to be favoring, you know, one branch of the government over the other, one party over the other. Everything we do is in public, on the web, all the guides we've got, everything like that, just so that people understand that like we are here for for everyone. Okay. And I'm I'm trying to figure out how how to phrase this next question. And it like what's the most, like you kind of mentioned how people always ask about the other social networks, but what's like the most common thing people are asking you at these events? <laughs> Can I get verified? No, like the, 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 there will always be people with, with verification questions or what we call like ops questions, like they're locked out or this or that. I mean, I think the question, the common question that is the common thread of everything is like, how do I create engaging content for Instagram for my politician, uh, for my government agency? You know, like I, I understand that I had, I guess, the opportunity to work for a politician who was a bit of a celebrity, you know, with or without his own social media, who was a celebrity, a star in that world, and had an absolutely terrific photographer long before I got there, right? So if you're dealing with, you know, a ministry of transport, it's necessarily a little bit more unsexy. And I use that example because I always like to talk about the British Columbia Ministry of Transport. They do such a great job on social media. Their account is literally about highways, right? Like there's no like handsome politician behind that account. So what makes them good, what sets them apart is you know storytelling and using the tools of Instagram to speak to people in a way that they expect to be spoken to on Instagram as opposed to like preached to by a press release in that sort of way. So like how do you have any like examples, like concrete examples of like what what they're doing in, in BC with that account? Yeah, two things. So like one is an example I use all the time in my presentations, which is like they were just announcing, you know, the unveiling of one of those machines that like moves the lanes over at one rush hour and then moves them back to the other side of another rush hour. Like the dullest thing you can imagine. How do you make that exciting? But their post was good. It was short, it was snappy, it was to the point, and you had a nice piece of video. You know, or the other day, I think they removed uh, some anti-Semitic graffiti from an underpass and they were tweeting about it. Well, you know, and it was just like the way they talk. They talk like normal human beings. Uh, our director of communications in the prime minister's office used to always say, talk like people talk as much as you can, right? It's not always easy in politics. It's certainly not easy like running a provincial ministry of transport account, but they're showing, they're, so they're showing on social media, showing how they do the work. They're, you know, sandblasting or whatever, this graffiti, this anti-Semitic graffiti off the underpass. They're speaking in a, in a short sort of snappy Twitter way. I think at one point they were like, we're working on it. And then they followed up with another tweet that was like, and it's gone, right? So like a bit of a South Park reference in there, right? Right, there's like, there's just like a way that they do things without being corny, without being cheesy. That's like, hey, we are here. We are working for you, the people of British Columbia, um, but we're not like super serious, nor are they, like I said, one of those cringy ass food accounts or brand accounts that you see that's just like, oh God, get that out of my face, you know? Is there like from a management of social media perspective, 
obviously like with not including like with government, there's going to be probably more red tape compared to like a private sector company. Like what are some things that just make it like, is there anything different day to day for managing it beyond the government side of things? You mean that make it like a little bit more complicated to, to run a government social media account? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, we deal with some government clients who are like, I'm not allowed to take screenshots on my phone because of security. Like our phone, the screenshotting feature on my phone is disabled. Like screenshots, the lifeblood of social media in a lot of ways, and they can't do it. So governments will always have like quirky security regulations, all kinds of strange workarounds that like you need to figure out. Look, we had Blackberries those first couple of years. So from a technical side, there's always, you know, there's always um, those considerations. And then from like a political side, you know, I think the number one lesson we learned once upon a time was don't schedule posts ever. So I know that in social media, there's a million and one third party programs that'll schedule your post. They'll manage your social media. They'll do whatever you want them to do you know, by the VIP package or whatever, not to denigrate those apps. But in politics, you sure as hell you know, need to remember that there could be a major earth shattering piece of news on the Saturday morning where you had your super lighthearted Instagram post about, you know, uh, something fun ready to go out. And holy hell, you want to make sure that doesn't go out and that you don't forget about it. So like it is, that is number one, do not schedule posts. So there's a million and one examples of like weird quirky stuff about politics to remember uh, in social that sometimes I wish I could work for like moon pie or whatever. And like, you know, work on the moon pie account. I criticize it, but like, that seems like there would be a lot more freedom to just be fun and hang out. Maybe they had too much freedom. <laughs> Maybe they had too much freedom. Or like a sport, yeah, or like a sports account. Like, you know, you work for a sports team. Like they have so much fun in ways that in a lot of ways, you know, a political account. Yeah, you can't be chirping back and forth with your competition from a political account the same way you do with a sports team. No, sir, you cannot. No, sir, you cannot. What are some of your favorite parts about working at Instagram? Uh, I mean, it's it's a really fun job. It's a, it's a fun place. It's, you know, the culture is amazing. It's it's people marching in step for a goal, you know, that like, and that changes a lot. Like we are, we're working together on this to launch this product. We're working together on this policy objective. You know, I work on the on the policy team technically. So there's, you know, there's a lot of stuff in terms of like product policy, content policy that I don't have a, a direct day-to-day uh, engagement with, or that I don't specifically work on that, but like, you know, I go to the meetings and it's fascinating, you know? So like, there's a lot of interesting stuff in terms of like working at a tech company, working at a giant social media company with everything that that entails in this day and age, that's like, there is never a dull moment it is a lovely place to work. And, you know, it's, it's the kind of place where I feel like super supported. And that if I, you know, wanted to spin off and do something 180 degrees different within the company, everyone would be like, yeah, here's, that's great. What do you want to do? You know, and and would, would at least sort of be receptive to me doing that. As someone who has worked in social for the last number of years, worked for Instagram, you're not super duper active. Like you don't have a crazy personal brand or anything on social media. And I'm curious if that's if that's intentional. Like because you're on it all day for work, you just have no energy once you're done. It's not so much that I have no energy. It's that like five years in politics dulled my instinct to like post a lot. You know what I mean? Like I was careful you know like i was careful because i had to be because number one you don't want to post on the wrong account but number two it's like look i'm in politics and i don't want to ever like be a target or make my my person look bad or anything like that so i just like you know cooled it a little bit not a lot i, I would say i'm definitely like not in the hot take business 
perhaps as much as I would want to, you know, like my takes are lukewarm. If I've got a take, if not, I'll just like, you know, tweet about hockey or whatever. And on IG, same thing, you know, like uh, my life has changed a lot. You know, I, I moved down to DC and, and, and I've got this job and whatever, but it's like, at a certain point, I'm like, I don't always want to be posting uh, as much as I used to. Um, and, and I, you know, it's just something that I, I, I think about a lot, but I don't really know what the answer is to answer your question. It's like, why don't I post that much? I don't know. Maybe I'm just a private person. I work in social media, but I'm a little bit more private than, than I thought I was, even though you know, my account's public and all the rest. This next question might, is kind of tied to the fact that there wasn't a lot about you on social media. It might need a little explaining, but I'm going to see if you get it just off the hop. Do you still have mad rhythm? <laughs> No, I've never had mad rhythm. Is that a reference to an old video of me that is Googleable somewhere? I gotta, I gotta get one of those services like reputation.com or whatever it is and like just clean up all the old like flotsam and jetsam of like my crap from social media from God knows how long ago. As you say, I'm pretty sure I just typed in your name on YouTube and it came up. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I, got, I don't want to know what else comes up. I have, for the Not record, I, I have never had. <laughs> mad rhythm at any point <laughs> and i'm curious kind of on the note just back to how you're talking about you've always been careful just because of your job and stuff were you expecting when you left working with the prime minister's office to go to instagram that it would make news like there's articles about the fact that you were leaving that were like in cbc and stuff like were you expecting that uh there was an article in cbc that that i don't, I don't like I don't know if I was expecting it or not. I mean, I think at the time, you know, in the Ottawa bubble, I think there was something in the Hill Times that I saw because, you know, it's maybe that whatever. was. I, I, can't, yeah. I don't have my links and stuff, but I remember yeah. seeing a couple of articles about you stepping down. Yeah, like you're a staffer in the in the PMO, so there's going to be interest in in comings and goings and all that kind of thing. But it was it was pretty low key. Like everyone was, you know, people everyone was pretty respectful about me leaving and me coming and and, and managing those expectations and, and all the rest. So I think it. It was okay. Like I was worried, but then I think also as political staffers, we start to think that we're way more important than we are. You know what I mean? Like, especially in the digital realm, and you just have to realize like life goes on, the machinery of government goes on without you, and that'll be that. The most important question I'm going to ask is, why do you pronounce it GIF and not GIF? Because that's the right goddamn way to pronounce it. Okay, that's the way to do it. And there is, there, is, there is research behind this. If you watch the Webby Awards for when they gave the Lifetime Achievement Award to the dude who created the GIF, he, uh, you know, on the Webby Awards, your, your acceptance speech can only be five words. So he goes up on stage, and I think uh, he no longer has the ability to speak, but I think his speech was projected behind him. And his speech, his acceptance speech was just, it's pronounced, and then J-I-F. It's pronounced GIF. So I will, I will die on that hill. Uh, you know, seven days a week. That's amazing. How often do you reflect on the whole journey? You know, going all the way back, back to California with Leno to working in news, liberals, that first election, working with Trudeau, Instagram, like how often do you look back on everything? A lot, dude. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a nostalgic guy. I'm, I'm, I'm in my head a lot about life choices and decisions I've made. And, and that's just the way I am. I think about it all the time. Like one decision leading to another and how I got here and how I got there. And like, here I am in Washington, DC, working on Instagram. And I'm like, I guess everything led up to this point. And like, 
you know, how did one thing lead into another? I don't know, but you know, I look back on it now. I'm like, cool. Like this is, uh, you know, I feel pretty blessed and, and, and I'm, you know, enjoying this work a lot. Do I miss politics? A ton, all the freaking time, you know, like it's just the way it is, right? Like it's, it's, I don't think anything, like I said, will ever get back to that level of excitement, but you know, I, I do think about the journey a lot for sure. For the last question, I like to flip the script a little bit. So instead of me asking the question, it's you asking the question, but it's not to me. So pretend you have a crystal ball. You can ask this crystal ball any question. You'll get the 100% honest answer. What is one question you'd want to know the answer to? Crystal ball. (laughs) Crystal ball. (laughs) Where will the social media world be in 15 to 20 years? And will I be entirely too old to keep working on it um, at that age? And will social media be, you know, implanted in our brain and so forth? And what will it all look like? I think about that all the time. I wish I had a crystal ball. Awesome. I love it. No one's ever asked that question before. And I, and I enjoy that question, but I want to thank you so much for taking time to be on the podcast. I want to give you the floor. Where can the people find you plug anything and everything you got right now? Oh, thank you so much, Jacob. I really appreciate it. You can find me uh, on Instagram, of course, at diamonddave22 um, and on Twitter at realdavesummer. So that's me. That's where to find me. Awesome. Well, make sure everything's linked in the show notes down below so people can find it. And I want to thank you once again for taking time to be on the podcast. And I want to thank everybody for listening, whether you've listened the entire way through or you only listen to bits and pieces. I really appreciate you taking time to check this out. Everyone do me a big favor. Go and follow Dave. He may not post a lot, but he's definitely a good follow. I'll make sure everything's linked in the show notes. Yeah, mm-hmm. like I posted decent. If I make it sound like my socials are like a tumble. I'm talking show. about Instagram. Oh, I'm good amount. All right. Okay. Yes. On Instagram. Instagram. Talk about Instagram. Twitter. Yes. You're more active yeah. on Twitter. I'll give you that. More active on Twitter than you are at Instagram. Um, I'll walk back that statement. Um, but no, but yeah, thank you so much. Thank you everybody for listening. If you'd like to find me, you can find me everywhere on social media at the Jacob Kelly. Feel free to come and say hello. As always, today's podcast is powered by TrueFan. Thank you once again for listening, everybody. We'll talk soon.